Welcome back to the Thermodiet Podcast. Today, we've got a very special episode for you all where we're joined by Mike Fave and Jay Feldman. Mike and Jay are both very well versed in the bioenergetic sphere, and they're just very knowledgeable guys that are really interesting to talk to. Um, today, we're going into and diving into muscle building and both the specific effects of what occurs in the actual muscle cell itself and also the endocrine and hormonal effects. So I think you guys will find this really interesting. I know I did. And uh, let us know what you guys think. Without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome back to the Thermodat Podcast. I'm your host, Jayton Miller, and I'm here with my co-host as well as a couple special guests, Mr. Tyler Woodward. And then we got Mike Fave on here and Jay Feldman. How are you, how you guys doing? Good. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Pretty good. Yeah. I appreciate the invite. Excited to talk to you guys. So today we're going to be talking about um, pretty much muscle growth and we're going to talk about it largely in a bioenergetic context, but we're going to also talk about it, uh, some of the different proposed mechanisms of muscle growth and what Jay and Mike think about them and whether or not they agree or disagree or advocate for them. Before we hop in first though, how's life for you fellas? How you been? I know y'all been grinding. Y'all been busy. Yeah, Jay, congratulations on all the podcasts you've been on. It's awesome to see you getting widespread so much. It's all over the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, things are busy for sure. I'm doing well. Um, But yeah, definitely busy. Mike, glad to see you on Instagram as well. Been enjoying your post. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I'm actually finishing up in the hospital. So I've been I've been working in the ICU for the past like year and a half or so for like because all the COVID stuff. And so uh, finally coming to an end of that, I'm going to jump, I guess, full bore into uh, what I've been doing online with and like creating more YouTube content and things like that. And then Jay and I are thinking about uh, enhancing the podcast a bit. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that, getting it, getting out more content on our podcast and whatnot. Uh, that'll be awesome. I'm a huge fan of your guys' podcast, as I told you guys, but that'll be I'm excited for some upgrades, whatever they are, <laughs> they are, that'll be cool. So there are obviously mechanisms in which we grow muscle and typically you go to the gym, blah, blah, blah. You lift some weights and, you know, eat enough, you grow muscle, but we're going to get a little bit more specific into that and what's going on in the actual cell and a little bit systemically. Um, so the first one we'll talk about is mechanotransduction, which is the actual application of tension to a muscle fiber, right? Where, you, you know, you lift, you bench press some weight, you slow down the rep and you press as much weight as you can um, for a number of reps. And as you get closer to failure, you start to recruit your higher threshold motor units and, you know, recruit all of pretty much all of the muscle fibers, a large portion of the muscle fiber. And that causes a high degree of intramuscular force or intramuscular tension, which, you know, you recover from, you gain muscle. Uh, I think, and when you guys talk about the specific effects of muscle growth, I think that's generally what you're referring to, correct? That's a piece of it. Yeah, it's a piece of it. We can dig into that as well, like other specific effects there. Okay, cool. Um, so I don't think there's really, I don't know if you guys, there's much debate on that. I think that's kind of like the standardized form of muscle growth today. And that's called myofibular hypertrophy, which is like the addition of new muscle fibers itself. I subscribe to a like periodization model. We were talking about this a little bit where they use different types of training. So that would be like, you know, relatively heavy weight, lower reps for going really close to failure. So another one they subscribe to is doing sarcoplasmic or lactate training, which is when they'll do very short rest, high reps. And basically the goal is to produce a lot of lactate in the muscle to induce sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, like the addition of new glycogen and water into the cell. And basically the idea behind it is to increase the the muscle cells glycogen stores to help you recover better in the future and also 
get you a nice pump. What do you guys think about that in terms of, and I obviously, and I would like to hear both like your thoughts on it as like a muscle building perspective. And also like, is it working against our health? There's other, there's other pathways as well. From what I can see, and like we were kind of talking about this before, it appears that like, we don't exactly know which mechanism, like what the exact mechanism of hypertrophy is yet. So we like know that there's these different, these different things. You have mechanotransduction, right? You have the, the lactate element. Um, then you have this like idea around muscular damage as like, and the, the hypothesis, the three main ones that I'm discussing come from like research mm-hmm. from Brad Schoenfeld's work. So those are like the three main ones that they discuss. And there's different, like very specific signaling molecule mediators in each of those and different pathways in each of those that get activated and appear to uh, uh, induce muscular hypertrophy. The, but what we're seeing from the research, or at least from the research that I've been reading, is it seems that those aren't necessarily primary drivers, the like lactate or like a muscular damage approach, which I know we didn't, you didn't necessarily mention yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that the primary one, at least that they're focusing on in this research, is like the mechanotransduction. So the actual tension applied to the muscle tissue. The problem with all of like with this type of research is that it's hard to separate these things from each other because when you have muscular contraction, you do have a metabolic stimulus, you do have a uh, like a mechanical stimulus, and you also induce a degree of muscle damage. Although over mm-hmm. time, what you see with the muscle damage is like there's the repeated bout effect. So I think that's what it's called. But essentially, as you like exercise consistently, you decrease the amount of muscular damage that you're generating. So over time, some of these things diminish. And obviously there's adaptations to each of these processes in the muscle tissue that make it, uh, make you like more resilient in dealing with them into future situations. So I think it's hard to parse out which exact one is causing hypertrophy at this point. It mm-hmm. appears based on my reading, at least, that the mechanotransduction is the pri- like the actual mechanical stimulus, the tension on the muscle is driving the hypertroph- hypertrophic response and the, a large part of the benefit. But it's hard to say that the other ones aren't involved with that mm-hmm. to some extent. And to what it just seems that they're to a lesser degree, at least from the research that I'm seeing. As far as like the, the health effects or like the effects in a training context, I think those are going to be like a little bit of different questions um, in the sense that like, so say there is an added benefit from optimizing um, like more muscular damage. What does that context look like in terms of training? Like if, can you go into the gym day in and day out and use eccentric loading, which is what induces muscular damage and then like maintain that on a long, on a long-term basis for, uh, for your hypertrophy versus just going in and doing regular workouts. Is that going to work into the context of someone's lifestyle walking out of the gym, like sore as crap and tired from doing like uh super loading on the weight and then using a scent an eccentric movement and things like that. I think there's like more context that I would build around that. And I I'm coming at this from like how I'm thinking about my own training with lifting and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you want to jump in Jay and talk about some like the negative effects around the lactate and et cetera and things along those lines. Sure. I mean, it, for one, I would echo, I think the, the, one of the first things you mentioned, which is that there's a lot of conflicting research here. The research as a whole is relatively young. And so we don't have super concrete answers 
in in the entire field. There aren't very concrete answers here, but there are some good lines of evidence that point toward the the primary driver of myofibrillar hypertrophy or hypertrophy that is also centered around increasing the diameter of the cross-sectional area of the muscle fiber as opposed to the length. Those things being centered around active mechanical tension on the muscle as opposed to them being related to the uh, metabolic stress, oxidative stress, or even uh, or the damage as well. So and it requires like going through the studies Mm -hmm. in favor of or against each of these pieces in order to really start to build that picture. But there's some, I I think, um, research that makes it at least a little bit more clear. So when you come to mechanical damage, the idea that maybe, or um, yeah, just like muscular damage, the idea that that might drive hypertrophy. Mike, you mentioned eccentric training. I know that was something we had planned to talk about anyway. In most of the research looking at adding eccentric training or emphasizing the eccentric component, it does add damage. It increases the damage relative to a more concentric based exercise protocol, but it tends not to increase hypertrophy relative to the concentric based protocol. And so that's a pretty, or at least relatively clear supportive evidence that the muscular damage is not one of the main contributors to hypertrophy. And you see that same thing, like even when it comes to calling active mechanical tension, mechanotransduction, I think we have to be careful, careful there, there as well, because Mechanotransduction is basically the idea that we are transmit, like transferring or translating the mechanical tension to a chemical signal. Mm. And the problem with that is the chemical signals alone, whether it's the oxidative stress, like reactive oxygen species component or the mTOR and the different uh, components that mTOR can activate, those molecular signals are not directly tied with hypertrophy either. One of the main confounding variables there is the repair of the muscles. So you can have a situation with excess muscular damage and you see increased levels of those molecular signals, but it doesn't actually lead to increased hypertrophy. It's just due to the repairing of the damage. So it does like you have to get into the weeds a little bit to parse these things out. But as Mike was concluding, I would agree that the mechanical tension seems to be the primary driver of hypertrophy. And it's really difficult to separate that from all the other components because those other components are inherent to creating that that tension. Um, but that seems to be the primary driver. When you increase those other components, it doesn't inherently lead to the hypertrophy, the hypertrophy, even though they might be a required piece of the hypertrophy process. Where I'm coming from, I completely agree that mechan, uh, transduction or the active mechanical tension, as you said, is a better way to phrase it is the main driver of hypertrophy. But what I'm I'm not disagreeing with you guys, but so what Kasim is arguing and what my interpretation of his work, I don't want to put words in his mouth, um, is that so let's say you have the lactate where you do the very high rep, short, very short rest, get the nice pump um, that increases glycogen stores. So then you have an oxidative stress based workout, which is very extended sets with lots of drop sets that's aimed at metabolic damage to which in theory, he says the evidence isn't quite there on it yet, but he thinks this is what's going to happen is increase the amount of mitochondria in the cell, which is improving mitochondrial respiration function, which I know you guys aren't necessarily always a fan of. And then mechanical tension, mechanical damage is the uh, damage using very lengthened, eccentric, overloaded exercises in order to increase the protein synthesis capacity of the cell. And he doesn't think that these necessarily directly drive hypertrophy, but that periodizing these in, so using, let's say, a two weeks of mechanical damage to increase your cell's ability to increase, uh, you know, its ribosome content, its ability to produce protein, 
basically will allow you to continue to grow and efficiently hypertrophy your muscles because you're hitting your limiting factors. So if you're, you don't have enough glycogen to recover or you don't have enough mitochondria to get through a workout that might be limiting. And so if we can specifically target that with specific types of workouts that induce oxidative stress or mechanical damage, then we can continually hit your limiting factor and you can progress more efficiently over time. Yeah. Well, so it's a, it's a great idea. One question I don't have, or at least a starting place is, are those actually limiting factors? Is glycogen storage and mitochondrial density actually a limiting factor to getting enough mechanical tension to drive hypertrophy? I think it would be hard to argue that it is. Um, it might be a limiting factor to some performance metric, mm-hmm. but that's a different question is, you know, determining or depending on what your your specific goals are. So that would be the first thing I would I would ask is, are those things actually limiting factors to hypertrophy? And so with that in mind, going through those phases, are those things that actually are going to <clears throat> lead to a, a situation where you're better able to build muscle? The other question, too, is, is the goal just hypertrophy? Is it the performance metric? Are we bodybuilding? Are we trying to have this translate to athletic performance? These are all going to also determine how we want to train. Well, let's put it in the uh, the context of a bioenergetic bodybuilder, Mike Fave. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm half joking. But um, yeah, I agree. I think that makes sense. I do think um, my counterpoint, which is you know a little bit anecdotal, well, you can't just do. We all. I think, know that you can't just do the same workout over and over again. Even if you're trying to increase weight, you typically stall out and you start to see diminishing returns. And that is an argument maybe to just do, you know, exercise variation, you know, hitting different muscles at different angles. But I also do think, and I, I don't have any direct evidence of this, that there probably are going to be limiting factors that develop, especially when you are adding tissue and um, things like that. Another another topic he, he talks about is uh, the neural factor of it and just he'll use really low weight like doing more powerlifting style or olympic not olympic lifts but low rate low weight or high weights are very low reps just to improve the nervous system's ability to contract muscles efficiently and that can translate to you know the better mind muscle connection or recruiting more muscle faster in the mechanical tension process i, I think it's, it makes a lot of sense um i don't have the evidence to you know d- uh, debate you guys i think you guys brought up good points but what do you guys mike what do you have any thoughts that's basically a basic concept of like periodization in a workout in terms of like altering like the type of stimulus that you're applying in the muscle. And then there's, so there's, I guess there's two components. So first off having a strength periodization phase as well as a hypertrophy periodization phase is like common practice within like the bodybuilding exercise world in general. And like, there's different periodization schemes you can run, whether it's undulating like weekly or daily, or like a progressive periodization schedule where you're ha- or like a blocked periodization schedule. So you can alter those things. And I don't think there's an argument against altering like some of these specific components. I think that altering those things can be quite helpful. That's something that I do with my own workouts as I periodize, I periodize, periodize, <laughs> my workouts based on like strength, extra strength components and like targeting different times for strength. And then also the hypertrophy, I do think getting stronger can help drive hypertrophy, but I think those are separate arguments from looking at like inducing muscular damage or like trying to increase a lactate threshold Mm -hmm. because of like limiting factors around your glycogen storage or like ribosome content of the muscle cell. I think that I, I don't haven't seen much evidence for those things, particularly for 
particularly for bodybuilding, I feel like those are probably not likely to be limiting factors for people. I think the largest limiting factor and the area where we would come for is more from a recovery perspective. And I would question if those types of exercises would particularly muscular damage inducing exercise would impair recovery and like natural trainees with other lifestyle factors on a consistent basis, which is why I think understanding the concept and your goal becomes quite important. If we're talking about lifting from the perspective of like, you know, guys who are working on a regular basis, just trying to look good in general and have like health benefits and a hypertrophic response in their muscle tissue without like an excessive stressful drain on their system, then I don't know if I would go down the route of like heavy muscular damage inducing exercises and heavy eccentrics. So I think that that's like, I think periodization is fine. And I, and then I also think understanding context for why you're lifting is important to have, uh, uh, to understand. And then I wanted to just touch in directly on the, like all, like you can't do the same workout over time. That is correct. However, you don't have to actually vary exercises per se. You can construct a workout routine or you can like build out a workout, uh, like periodize your cycle so that you're adjusting exercises just slightly over the course of the different micro cycles and, or, and, or your mesocycle. And then you also can adjust the exercises that you're doing within a micro cycle over the course of the week. And not to mention, you can adjust, um, rest times. You can adjust weight over time. You can adjust sets and volume of different muscle groups. And so like, there's a lot of other variables to change instead of like inducing, uh, like heavy amounts of, um, like lactate development or lactate buildup, which again, I don't know if that's necessarily as problematic to some extent, uh, except when we start to talk about recovery effects. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, and when we start to look at the like muscular damage, I don't think you have to use that necessarily as a variable to switch up what you're doing workout wise. I think you can, like, there's many other variables that you can modulate on a consistent basis, um, to like affect different, like to affect a muscular a hypertrophic response or a change in your muscle tissue. Have you guys seen Schoenfeld's article on lactate and its potential as a signaling molecule to like the Leydig cells and testes? So, and they had shown this in rats. They haven't shown in humans. Basically the lactate that you produce goes partially to the liver, you know, the core cycle and to other muscles, but also to the Leydig cells and it signals I uh, forget the exact mechanism that it was proposed, but it signals to the cells to increase testosterone, which then has a nutrient partitioning effect back to those muscles. Have you seen that at all? Yeah, I'm not familiar with that paper, but I had seen the evidence suggesting that lactate can increase hypertrophy in rats, but I know that that was not replicated in humans. Uh, okay. So that would that would be something to consider. Uh, but yeah, I I haven't seen that. And I think it gets to a larger point, which is, I think the most important thing and maybe a, a starting place is what is this larger context that we're trying to create? Because there are a lot of different ways to increase testosterone. There's a lot of the different ways to increase hypertrophy. There's a lot of different ways to work out. And, and the question, I, I think before determining what the best one is, the question is what is our like clear, like, like, like let's get really clear about what the goal is. And I do want to echo just real quick before that, what Mike said, which is that I think there might be a bit of a false dichotomy here where what you were describing, Tyler, as far as these different, the periodization of that program, A, I don't think that's necessarily, even if it's phrased as trying to focus on increasing the stress side, the metabolic stress side and the lactate side, that doesn't mean that it's not 
also increasing hypertrophy via mechanical tension mm -hmm. because you don't have to like you don't have to be lifting very heavy weights to get this enough mechanical tension to create hypertrophy you can do it with moderate or even semi-light loads as long as you're doing enough reps there and getting enough of what are deemed as stimulating reps where once you get enough fatigue where you are recruiting those higher uh threshold motor units and you've slowed the velocity down you get enough force to create the signals for hypertrophy so it doesn't have to be in, in either or. I think it can be a both and. I think periodization can definitely fit in here. And I think what we're really getting at the larger question is what does the design of a program look like that's going to ideally, I'm assuming, maximize health? But what's the second piece there? Are we just trying to maximize for hypertrophy or are we trying to be effective movers mm -hmm. or are we trying not to get bored of our workouts? Uh, are we trying to maximize <laughs> our hormonal state? So Maybe that's a, I don't know, feel free to direct wherever you want, but I guess that would be my question is what are, what is the context of really? Me personally, <laughs> it, it would be uh, not getting bored after a decade of training. That would be my, my main goal here. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, um, and part of the reason I, I thought you guys would be so interesting to talk to you about this, because I kind of want to dive into like the differences between training for like, you know, the, the person that's really focused on their health and just wants to put on some tissue versus the person that's an all out bodybuilder and is cool with it, uh, sacrificing some health, had some health points at the expense. And I kind of think that's an interesting line. And I know. So something that I thought was interesting, and I think you guys might have some counterpoints to this too, uh, is a Menno Henselmans. He's uh, like in the lifting community. He published an article about how estrogen uh, was found to increase muscle growth. And I know this has been contested, especially with birth control, but I thought, and this was a while back, I thought it made sense, right? Because estrogen is a growth hormone. I know it typically doesn't make a structure growth, but it also kind of led to my, like the point that, you know, a lot of the muscle building pathways are echoed in, you know, the cancer pathways of the mTOR and the AMPK. And I'm not saying like those are the same, but there are some similarities. So I kind of thought like it does make sense in some, and this is where the specific effects were, I think is so interesting that you guys talk about where that, you know, muscle growth, the pursuit of muscle growth in it of itself, like if you're just going for muscle growth at all costs, is going to have some negative side effects. And it kind of made sense to me that estrogen or certain things like that could yield higher degrees of muscle growth. Um, so I don't know if you, uh, that was a lot, but if you guys want to talk about like the, I guess the specific effects and training for like as like a healthy bioenergetic individual versus, you know, the person that's going all out for muscle growth and the consequences that may have. Yeah, I, I think there's a spectrum with this stuff, right? So like, I don't think, again, I don't think it's like an either or where you like, you either have to choose health or you have to choose hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. I do think there's like a certain point where if you like, if you want to step on stage as Mr. Olympia, um, you may have to make some degree of health sacrifices because of like what's entailed and involved with that. But I still think you can like be a decently muscular individual, carry around like a decently large amount of muscle, um, like while living a healthy lifestyle simultaneously. So like when I work with clients, if I'm building out a workout program for them, I'm going to be looking to hit like a certain number of vol, like a researched amount or certain number of volume per week per muscle group and things like that. Um, and I think like, if you even look at some of the research, a very minimal amount of so from like a general health perspective, a very minimal amount of resistance training has a huge benefit on health in and of itself, whether or not you're going to be like a bodybuilder or you're going to be putting on ridiculous amounts of muscle. So from the most basic level on this spectrum, we have the idea that like, if you just go and do some, like, I think, what was it like 30 or 
30 minutes or an hour of resistance training a week had like a pretty significant effect on general health in an individual. Um, even if you were just doing that, cause again, like for us, for Jay and I, or maybe I don't, or at least for me, for my client population, like I have client population of people who are a lot older and who just want to have general health and who want to, you know, maintain a healthy weight and feel good and whatnot. And I have people who are very sick who are dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome. And then I have young guys who want to optimize their lifestyle from like a bioenergetic perspective. So all of those contexts are going to be a little bit different. So on the most basic level, you can have somebody walk into the gym, do a basic machine circuit, even if they have chronic fatigue syndrome and just like sit down and just stimulate the muscles a little bit. And you're still reaping health benefits and some beneficial effects for them overall. You can have people walk a couple times a day, things like that. On the other end, you can build out a structured routine with a certain amount of volume per week for an individual who, um, like a young guy who, or a, I don't know, it doesn't have to be necessarily a young guy. That's just the demographic that I see a lot that's interested in that. But for a young guy who wants to put on a decent amount of muscle, maybe change his recomposition his body. So like he can be doing a decent amount of volume on his exercises, lifting heavily, have his exercises periodized, having other activity outside. So like there's like a whole spectrum of things that are possible. And then the other thing is like hormonal, you, there's a hormonal component that's important as well. So like, I don't think it's necessarily unhealthy for exogenous hormone use as well, depending on what you're using. Mm -hmm. You can go from like the person who's like, I work out, you know, once a week for 30 minutes to I work out six days a week with my bodybuilding stuff and I manage my stress and I'm using exogenous hormones as well. So like, I think there's a healthy spectrum all between there. The unhealthy part I think is where you start to be like, I'm going to do unnet like ridiculous loads of exercise and volume, et cetera. And then pile on very potent exogenous compounds that have a whole host of negative effects. And that's where you start to possibly see people going into like that professional arena and stepping on stage at like ridiculous body weights with low body fat percentage and on a litany of compounds that have pretty harsh side effects. And that's where I start. I think you start to see the health problems per se mm -hmm. as everything else, like kind of below that initial spectrum I, I discussed. I think that there's health benefits there. And I think that it depends on that individual person's context. So in your perspective, as like a natural lifter, generally you're going to, there's not going to be a huge difference. Um, let's, even if you're going to optimize as much muscle growth as possible, when you start really stressing your body, you're probably going to see diminishing returns, right? So like doing too much load, too much eccentric training is probably going to be, you know, too, too stressful to your body that you're probably going to see less muscle growth than if you had done more of an optimal friendly, bioenergetic friendly training module, because you're you know, we have to manage our hormones naturally and hormones are a huge effect of muscle growth, a huge part of muscle growth. There's, I think limits to like what a person, like what each individual can handle, right? Some people, so as an example, when Jay and I were working out in college, Jay could handle a lot more volume than I could personally in terms of like, we could go and do five sets of <laughs> like all these different exercises and his, like he would handle that volume well. Whereas for me, like I could go heavier and, but I couldn't handle as much volume. So I could like max out at certain, like I can stay in those higher ranges. So I think there's individual variants and I also with that. And so it's like some people can handle, well, there's different stressors, right? So you can have like, if you're going extremely heavy, you have like a fatigue from your nervous system perspective if you do that inappropriately. So like, there's obviously ways to manage that. And then if you're like doing a large amount of eccentric exercise and you have a lot of muscular damage, 
there's issues with recovery from that. If your volume is too high and you can't deal with the, the actual volume that you have on a regular basis, there's problems with that. Then the other thing is what else you have going on in your lifestyle. And I think for like regular people that becomes more important. And as an example, like when I worked in the hospital and I was doing 60 hours a week in the hospital, there's no way I was going to work out six days a week with 12 sets of chest, 12 sets of quads, 12 sets of glutes, 12 sets of back, et cetera. I couldn't handle that volume. It was crushing to me because I wasn't re- being, I wasn't recovering from the work that I was doing otherwise. Mm-hmm. So like those I think are huge factors to consider as well. So there's like, there's a lot about the individual context of the individual. What is their goal? What is their current like health state current that they're dealing with? What is their external stressors that they have involved? And what is like their inborn ability to deal with exercise? Some people do well, do really well with exercise. And something that we talked about, and I'll let Jay, I kind of want to like monopolize, but I'll let Jay, I'll let Jay jump in is like, there's a point where too much exercise does start to dip in the energy that you have available for other processes. So there's also questions around like how much energy are you having available for your general function for your health and whatnot. And then where's that line where the exercise is starting to dip into that and cause issues otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I know something we want to get to is how much stimulus do we really need? And what's the cost to focusing too much on getting that stimulus? And I think in terms of the spectrum of how much muscle mass might be detrimental, I might draw the line at a slightly different place from you, Mike, but there is a certain point where, or a certain cost to prioritizing muscle. So I think it's helpful to consider what we're doing when we're working out or when we're resistance training is we're giving our bodies a signal that muscular strength and the use of our muscles is important. And I, th- I would argue that that's generally okay if we're in an abundant state with adequate energy availability, of course, adequate fuel availability and everything else that goes into that. But if we begin prioritizing muscle when we're not in that state, which is the case for most people, then we end up prioritizing that muscle over our other function, over the function of our other organ systems, over the function of our digestion, our brain function, our immune function. And I think that's a situation where we're really running into a major cost. And in general, the focus is on hammering that signal so strongly that our bodies are always prioritizing muscle mass. And I've seen that quite a bit. I mean, I worked as a personal trainer, saw other trainers who their entire lives were you know, body composition focused, weight training focused. They looked really great, but they were dealing with quite a few uh, issues, quite a few symptoms. And so I think that is the push and pull that we have. And if we're in an energetically favorable environment with the hormones that reflect that, that can allow us to build muscle with much less of a stimulus without that cost and without the cost to our other bodily systems. So I think that's uh, the the part on the spectrum I'd be focusing on. A good example of this, again, it's relatively extreme is when you start looking at like female athlete triad stuff or hormonal aberrations derived from like very strong um, exercise or body composition goals. Because the other component here with this, I think besides just like muscle growth and hypertrophy is like body composition is a big piece for people. So you have the negative effects of like maintaining low body low body fat levels, as well as the negative effects of like dieting super hard. So I think those are also components of the whole picture. But an example of like where that line can start to be drawn is like a female athlete triad picture um, as an at an extreme end. What's a female, like female athlete triathlete you're saying or triad? Essentially, 
what happens is at a certain level of exercise in women, oh. like it, at more extreme levels, what you can start to see is like a loss of hormonal function. So you can see aberrations in, in cycle, aberrations in hormonal profile, and then also changes in like bone mass and things along those lines. So this is just an extreme example of what we're, what we're kind of discussing where there's a certain level where when you're exercising and like prioritizing heavy amounts of muscle gain or optimizing a certain body composition, it can come at the expense of other important bodily processes. In this situation, it would be reproduction. So there's, um, those are like, it's an extreme example, but mm -hmm. this, I think at least what I've seen myself and what I've seen with clients is that at a certain, and then there's also the idea of overtraining, which you can see to some extent in the literature at a certain level of training, if you, if you are dipping too much and using too much of your resource to prioritize muscle growth or body composition it, or recovering from the training process, you can start to eat away at other functions, whether that's reproduction, whether that's sleep, whether that's appetite, whether that's digestion that start to pose a problem, right? Cause there are limits at the amount that you can recover from. And there, and those are limits that I think are more important than like the ribosome content or like the like muscle glycogen level, but it's mm -hmm. like the level that you can recover from and also the level that you can assimilate nutrients to, to help with that recovery process. So there's limits from that capacity. And, and again, that's where those, where they see the benefits of the exogenous drugs and why at those higher levels, people are using those substances because they have a super physiologic demand. So women, I, I typically think are a little bit more in touch with their hormones because they have that monthly cycle. Um, they tend to just, you know, see larger degrees and fluctuations where I think men, like if, if you're really overtraining, it's going to be a more gradual, steady decline. Do you think men, let's like, we had a, a period, but do you think men would, if, because men can do the same thing, they can seriously overtrain. I feel like they generally just hit a wall versus like women tend to see it. Do you think they're going to see these similar hormonal fluctuations in you know, the male triad, uh, I never heard a phrase like that, but like that sort of thing, like if they, cause men just don't have that, uh, monthly check-in. I think it just manifests differently. It's not like you see this change in their men's menstruation. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's more that you see like alterations in mood, maybe libido may like, so you can see general symptoms like with libido. So morning wood desire for sex, um, like random erections throughout the day and like mental function as far as like ambition or drive to get things done. I know personally for me, when I like overextended myself trying to work out after I was working in the hospital and still get all my workouts in and things along those lines, when it came time to doing work, so preparing for a podcast or for uh, like getting client work done, I was just like, I was done. Like I, all I wanted to do was sit on the couch and vegetate. And that was like, I was just was stuck in that for like a couple for like a week or two when I overextended myself. And I think that's like your body will give you signals if you pay attention and you start, you'll start to see a variety of these different processes start to take uh, a beating. It's so like the way I kind of describe it when I'm talking about clients is if you have a corporation and the corporation doesn't have enough funds available, well, then the marketing department's probably going to start to suffer and then advertising and then, you know, HR and things like that. So like, that's an example, I guess, for the body where it's like, if you're, if you don't have enough energetic energy available, and I guess we could define that a little bit better and as we go further, but you'll start to adjust these other processes. They'll start to take a back seat. And so this doesn't only happen with exercise, but you can see this in people with stress states or disease states 
it, as an example, if you have a patient in the ICU, what you can see is drastic drops in hormonal function, for example, induction of hypogonadism in men, and also something called low T3 syndrome or euthyroid 6 syndrome. So that's where you're under severe metabolic stress from a sickness or an illness. Again, this is an extreme example, and it starts to impede other body processes and hormonal processes, and they start to shut down and become less prioritized. And this is a function of the stress system. It does this on purpose because the goal is to survive, not create kids while you're laying in a coma. Jay, you have any thoughts or anything you want to add? Yeah, I would agree. So in terms of the question of do men have the equivalents, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And of course, we just aren't going to see it necessarily as quickly or as it's not as apparent, or maybe we're more likely to push through it. And if we realize that our sleep is off or our digestion's off or immune function, or we don't have the energy or drive, we'll kind of force ourselves to still go to the gym, whatever it is. But yeah, it, it absolutely takes a toll when mm-hmm. we're overtraining and that overtraining doesn't necessarily require a lot of stimulus depending on your energetic environment. It can happen pretty easily. And I think normally when we're talking over training and when you see it in the literature, they're talking about more extreme versions, but I think for the average person, they're generally in an overtrained state to an extent and just forcing their bodies to prioritize still building muscle despite that. And, uh, yeah, their, their limited energy is going toward that, which I think is, is yeah. What ends up leading to a lot of degeneration over time. I want to, so just like question for you, Jay, are, are you saying they're not, it's not that they're overtrained from training, but it's that like their general health state and context from whatever they have going on in their life and their bodily functions is at such a point that adding a training stimulus can easily push them into overtraining instead of them, like because of them, like exercising too much. It's like their general context can't handle the level of exercise that they're, they're imposing on themselves. Yeah, totally. And then there's the assumption if they aren't building muscle maybe as quickly because there's this massive stress that they're already dealing with is that they need to adjust their training routine or train harder or go heavier, whatever it is, when in reality, the stimulus is normally more than adequate and it's more of the overall state that we need to improve. Yeah, I like to say there's no such thing as overtraining. It's just under recovering, (laughs) which is not true, but I feel like it's a a lot of people feel like don't train hard enough to be in like the purely overtrained state where it's physically from training, which more so just from like, you know, you're not sleeping, you're stressed out at, at the hospital, all that stuff. And then you're trying to go and build muscle. Um, speaking of building muscle, do you think, and this is, uh, I'd like to talk some more about hormones. Do you think it should be a lot easier to build muscle than people have a hard time with today? Cause I feel like people are looking into, and uh, you know, it has to do with our food supply and what we're eating as well. I feel like generally if we were looking back a hundred years ago and we, you know, we're in the upper echelon of, you know, nutrition, we could afford good food. Um, we all have generally higher testosterone levels, at least to a degree. And I feel like we, you don't, you know, gyms are a relatively new innovation, right? And it's not like, I don't think people were Arnold Schwarzenegger ripped before gyms. And obviously he's on a lot of steroids, but like people, I feel like generally were, we weren't, you know, lanky, like I think we had some muscle mass as, as, and you know, I'm not saying like, you're going to go be like, look at a bodybuilder unless you're like a physical freak, but do you think it should be easier to build on muscle if we were all in a healthier state? Yeah, I would say so. There's. A study that I think Mike and I have discussed before where they gave participants super physiological doses of testosterone and looked at, uh, compared them in a training group versus non-training group. And then they had a training group that did not have any of the, uh, the exogenous testosterone. And in terms of building muscle, the group that built the most muscle was the exogenous testosterone training group. 
but the they had the group that did not train at all and was just given the testosterone and they gained almost as much muscle as the the ones that were training and it was significantly more way more than the group that was training and did not have the super physiological amount of testosterone so to like kind of put that together in case that was a little bit of a word salad for people basically giving testosterone or having very high levels of testosterone allows for muscle growth even without exercise even without training specifically to build muscle and these were levels that are pretty far beyond what's normal or you know healthy or optimal but it definitely goes to show you know it definitely supports how much our hormones will impact our body composition and how easily we should be able to build muscle with a pretty mild amount of stimulus as long as our hormonal environment supports it. And as we've kind of all been suggesting this whole time, a huge part of that is recovery. And that's where these hormones really make the biggest effect is in their anti-catabolic effects and their ability to oppose the effects of cortisol and reduce the production of, of the uh, stress hormones. And so if we're able to just get a little bit of stimulus, which doesn't even have to be resistance training, it can be all sorts of different forms of exercise. And we have a really supportive hormonal environment with pretty low stress. I would argue that we should be able to build muscle pretty easily. And I know quite a few people, myself included, where I spend a lot of time in the gym uh, before coming into the bioenergetic perspective in situations where I was either under eating or under eating carbs. You know, I always made sure to have enough protein, of course, but the, ease with which I could build muscle after addressing these things was incredible compared to before. And uh, I think that's how it should be. We should be able to build muscle pretty easily for the most part, if we're in an energetically unfavorable, energetically favorable environment. I think an example of like, of what our current environment is, there's a couple things and they're, they're like clickbait, obvious things that have been discussed like on the news recently, but like, you see drastically lowered levels of testosterone in current generations compared to previous. You see changes in sperm concentrations and function compared to previous generations, so alterations fertility. And then the large amount of the population is either overweight or obese. And so something on the flip side of like having adequate testosterone to build large amounts of muscle, you get into another situation where you have adequate amounts of cortisol to build large amounts of visceral adipose tissue or belly fat. So I think what you're starting, you're seeing the, to some extent over the, like the population, a general low metabolic state characterized by stress with high catabolism and low anabolism and a, a cellular, cellular energy deficits. And what do I mean by that is because a lot of people think obesity is this problem of gluttony, but what we're starting to see, what, what you actually see in like some of the hypothesis that Jay, Jay and I have talked about on the podcast is that obesity, there's a, there's a, like an anabolic state in the fat tissue because the substrate is being diverted towards fat rather than being converted into actual energy at the cells. So I think, and this becomes important, particularly from muscle building state is because within the muscle, within the muscle cell, you need energy in order to, in order to number one, induce the, or be involved in the mechanical transduction or any of these pathways in order to build muscle, et cetera. And this kind of, I guess, will tie into the AMPK conversation that I know you guys wanted to kind of discuss a bit, but basically you're seeing like people are just like are in low energy states overall with low anabolic hormones, probably higher catabolic hormones and increased level of inflammation. And I think for like a broader audience, so like not people who are trying to optimize their hypertrophy, but for like the general audience coming to the bioenergetic or some of these dietary 
paradigms or these nutrition principles to try and fix their general health states, they're not in this optimized state to like prime and find the best way to put on the most amount of muscle with like the best periodized plan, altering these, like these different, um, like in-depth mechanisms. It's more like, well, for, for example, the, my, a lot of my clients is like, let's just get you healthy enough so that you can walk three times a day after a meal and, you know, feel pretty good and start to like jet dr- slowly lose weight over time and not be like completely fatigued or have terrible digestive issues. I think the vast majority of the population is like just trying to get to that point. And then there's like, there also obviously is a subset of the population. that's like, okay, I've already passed that point. I'm doing pretty well. Like what's this next level of things? How do I optimize my hypertrophy and things like that? But I think for the vast majority of people, they're going to have a ridiculously hard time building muscle because they're in these poor hormonal states or on these cellular, cellular energy deficits. They already have high stress hormones. And then you like, you try to throw this, this stimulus on top of them that they can't recover from. And that's, that's where I, the, the problem is. And that's why I kind of relay it. Like if somebody's working like 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week or whatever they're doing, it's going to be hard to really for a lot of people to hammer in exercise because it's, it like there's already a stress there. Like you, you're sitting in an office surrounded by, you know, whatever fluorescent lights, EMF, you're sitting down all day long. You're probably not eating well. And then by the time you're done, you're drained. And it's like, all right, let's hit the gym. <laughs> and a lot of people are like, I can't do that. It's just too much. Yeah. So I think there's, I think for the vast majority of the population, they're like, they're at this place where they can't even consider some of these things. So hormonal, hormonally, hormonally, what do you think is, are the biggest blockers of muscle growth? Like we know testosterone, probably thyroid, maybe progesterone. I'm throwing that out there. Probably what are going to favor more muscle growth? What, what is the opposite of that? And I would suggest cortisol and adrenaline, but what do you guys think? I think cortisol is probably like the, the main one that you see that has a like very potent catabolic effect. Its job is literally to take protein tissue and convert and and turn it into glucose in like states where you don't have adequate glucose or in states where there's like a a stress stimulus that induces a higher demand for substrate. So I think you're going to, you're going to see that largely with glucose, maybe glucagon, maybe uh, to some extent, depending on like where you're at with that, like to what degree, you know, there's a physiologic level of glucagon, like following meals, but Mm -hmm. like in states of diabetes, you have this drastically upregulated gluconeogenesis process. And then again, it's, it's the same thing like the catecholamines you'll see. So like there, there's a benefit to them to provide substrate during exercise. But what I think like, even in some of the obesity studies I'm reading, there's like a generally upregulated sympathetic tone in obesity with a a diminished, like acute response during stressful situations, et cetera. Um, So I think it's like the chronic upregulation of these things. What do you think, Jay? Yeah, I agree. Totally. I mean, the catabolic hormones largely being cortisol and then epinephrine and and glucagon being important as well there. And uh, yeah, you mentioned that those are going to increase momentarily during exercise, and that's fine. The hormonal response to exercise itself doesn't seem to be all that involved in what's going on in terms of hypertrophy or muscularly overall. You know, the small increase or temporary increase in testosterone and also you'll have a temporary increase in the stress hormones, but uh, the, the general state and how often you're having elevations in those stress hormones is certainly going to 
And obviously, you know, you take the extreme example of Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome, you know, very high levels of cortisol, and you see the huge amounts of central adiposity and virtually no muscle mass, especially in like the, the limbs. And uh, yeah, that's the best way to lower uh, your muscle masses is with large amounts of cortisol. And, and you'd see that as, you know, a side effect of glucocorticoid use and everything. So. Would you guys be in favor of like intra-workout carbs just to, you know, minimize that cortisol response during exercise, just less to recover from pretty much? Pretty yeah. much, yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, not only does it uh, help with the recovery side or minimize the actual damage and stress of the workout, but it also has been shown to improve performance. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think those couple of things together are pretty good. Yeah, carbs and electrolytes. So I, you mentioned juice and basically juice is a great source there because you have electrolyte and carbohydrate. Maybe you little sodium would help with like the workout, not just potassium, but yeah, all of those things could be super helpful. And obviously like baking soda is another thing to, mm-hmm. to like additionally, but, um, the other thing is rest times with like, if you have adequate carbohydrate with your exercise and you're also resting appropriately, it can minimize the stress response over time through both mechanisms. Like, and this may, this is, I guess, somewhat counter to like the metabolic stress idea, but if you're resting adequately, you allow the muscle to generate or regenerate adequate amounts of ATP for the next, uh, for your next set. So you're, you're not like con- constantly taxing the muscle metabolically. And that would op- that would technically optimize, at least from my understanding, a mechanotransduction p- perspective, because you are, you can, if you have adequate energy, you can lift a heavier weight or a weight that was just as heavy for X number of reps versus if you're metabolically compromised because you just did a heavy set before the amount of weight that you can move in the next set will be decreased, which will technically decrease your mechanotransduction. So I guess that does bring in, and it goes back to our initial conversation a bit, a question of are some, will some of these pathways or trying to optimize some of these pathways impact other ones. And so if mechanotransduction is like a very important driver of hypertrophy more so than metabolic stress, would you still want to prioritize metabolic stress at the expense of like a mechanotransduction in that perspective. Mm. And so an example without all the sciencey word salad, as Jay put it before was at, so say I bench press for 80 pound dumbbells for 12 reps. And in my next set, I'm supposed to go to 90 pound dumbbells for 10 reps. If I only rest a minute, it's unlikely I'll be able to get that 90 pound dumbbell set. But if I rest three minutes and this is like actually a, like a real life anecdote for me, if I rest three minutes, I'm able to get the 90 pounds for 10, no problem without like burning out because I, my muscles have had adequate time to recover from the previous set. Rest, I think is another important element. What do you think about the role of endotoxin? Uh, I know you guys love your endotoxin (laughs) and and, uh, I I really like theanine. I feel great when I uh, uh, take that and know that it helps to mitigate some of the absorption of endotoxin. And we were talking with Georgie a couple of weeks ago he believes a lot of the cortisol response from exercises from the absorption of endotoxin, also histamine and serotonin. What do you guys think about endotoxin as kind of like a blocker in terms of, you know, general metabolic health, but like specifically in terms of muscle growth? We're actually going to release a uh, endotoxin supplements, Hormetic. So you take endotoxin. <laughs> I'm down. I'm going to take some cold showers and fast for 72 hours. Do a line of endotoxin in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> It inflames your brain and then you upregulate all these processes that help you deal with endotoxins. It increases BDNF and uh, (laughs) (laughs) just need a little bit of hypoxia. Yeah, just a little Uh, bit. (laughs) Yeah, I prefer Wim Hof personally, but you know, pick your poison. (laughs) Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know if Georgie mentioned this when you guys talked to them, but there's the gelding theory of male hypogonadism, mm. which is so it's uh, it's an acronym. Gelding stands for gut endotoxin leading to a decline in gonadal function. I can't believe it's you basically have that this, off the top of your head. It's impressive. I don't have it written down. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> it's no disappointment. You're no Ray Jay. You can't remember, you know, people's names and researchers' names from like the 1930s. <laughs> Not yet. I've got time to live up to that. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, so it's this entire uh, Hypothesis built around endotoxin being the leading driver of a decrease in gonadal function, and and they talk specifically about testosterone and androgens. And there's a handful of mechanisms through which this happens. Uh, it creates an inflammatory state in the testes, which prevents the Leydig cells from producing steroid hormones. It also inhibits the star protein activity, which allows for the cholesterol to get transported to the mitochondria to produce steroid hormones. So endotoxin is a pretty uh, has a, is is pretty immediately able to decrease androgens, which of course is uh, going to have a huge impact on the ability to build muscle and the ability to not lose muscle, and just for body composition as a whole. And that's not to mention that endotoxin is and absolutely named like one of the most toxic things that we have to our physiology, in that it directly impairs our ability to produce energy and inhibits the activity of certain complexes in the electron transport chain, particularly one and four. And as a product of that is able to drive pretty systemic inflammation and you see elevated levels of endotoxin, uh, at least moderately elevated in virtually every chronic health condition, you know, diabetes, fatty liver disease, uh, obesity. And uh, yeah, one of the main effects that it's having is going to also be lowering the androgen. So I think it's a huge, huge factor. And there is the possibility that with exercise, Maybe, you know, you are getting a momentary increase in endotoxin. I wouldn't be as concerned about that personally as much as I would be in the same ways. I wouldn't be as uh, concerned about momentary increases in lactate or cortisol during exercise as much as I would be the larger systemic state over time. Mm. And again, this is part of the reason why it's so important to emphasize recovery, uh, but also to be in a state where there's not much endotoxin to be released in the first place and, uh, you know, having really solid gut health and also not doing excessively stressful exercise, which uh, can definitely in large enough amounts, increase endotoxin exposure, increase intestinal permeability. You know, we've seen that with uh, endurance training, like long, long distance endurance training certainly happens. I don't really think it would be likely a problem with resistance training. I haven't seen anything to suggest that, Uh, but it's certainly going to be one of the major things to inhibit recovery, Mm -hmm. cause issues with body composition and on from there. More so chronically, you're saying like, if it's just, you always have. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So when Georgie references that, I think he's talking about long distance endurance running where you see like drastic changes in gut permeability. I don't think you're going to get as like, you're going to see that with like properly performed like, resistance training. I don't think you're going to drive like high levels of gut permeability. What you will see that's important is you have when, so say you start to exercise, it will decrease the blood flow to your gut and prioritize that blood flow to other tissues. Like that from like a basic implementation perspective, I would not eat a meal and then go train right away. Like I would give yourself some time to digest because the undigested food may cause problems like in the colon, especially if you've had dysbiosis or anything along those lines. But I doubt that like actual training with weights is going to lead to drastic increases in um, 
like blood endotoxin levels or portal endotoxin levels, which is the blood supply from the gut to the liver. Uh, something to mention, something, some other things to mention about extra endotoxin is that the cytokines that endotoxin releases directly have an impact on the hypothalamus and the and like the hypothalamic pituitary pathways and then the signaling of all of the hormonal pathways like down the line. So we can alter thyroid signaling and gonadal signaling directly as well, as well as directly having a negative effect on thyroid function uh, and then upregulating the catabolic hormones like cortisol um, and the catecholamines, et cetera. So it has like a pretty potent negative effect across the board. And then it pretty much beats the crap out of your liver. Um, so like most of the damage from alcohol is through that opening up of the gut and then having this endotoxin reach the liver. And there's some interesting mice studies basically showing germ-free mice exposed to alcohol don't really develop like severe cirrhosis, which is scarring of their liver and where they just kind of get a fatty liver. Whereas when you have alcohol, when you have alcohol and bacteria present in the gut, you see that negative effect. And so that's important in body composition because liver is heavily involved in activation of things like thyroid hormone and excretion and processing of things like estrogen and cortisol and testosterone. And then the, the partitioning of different substrates within the body, the carbohydrates, fats, et cetera. So if you have like this large endotoxin load, you can have issues at the liver and like the fatty liver or the non-alcoholics NASH, non-alcoholic hepatitis pathology is largely surrounded around endotoxin um, to, to, to a great extent. Mm-hmm. So that endotoxin plays heavily with that from something else you minus like what are practical applications here is make first one I mentioned was don't eat a meal right before you work out. Like don't go out, have a massive steak, potatoes and a bunch of juice, and then try to bang out, you know, like 20 rep sets of squats, probably not going to feel good. You may throw up. Um, then the next thing would be having that juice intra workout can be super helpful because the polyphenolic compounds present in the juice are helpful in modulating the gut microbiome. So there's some studies with like pomegranate juice and orange juice lowering serum endotoxin levels compared to like a glucose solution or a water solution, which is what you would see with, with a high car, high fat, high carbohydrate meal, which in, it generally induces a low grade endotoxemia in studies. So having some of that present can be super helpful. And then obviously like if you're, if you're resting appropriately between sets that allows for adjustment, in, I think in blood supply as well. So like with the marathon or continuous running, part of the problem is that you're constantly like creating metabolic stress. You're not allowing yourself to recover from it. And then you're directing all this blood supply to other tissues besides the gut. And then that's where I think you start to see like the ulceration and things start to form. So it's more, it's important to kind of, you know, have the rest between sets, having some juice can be helpful um, and not eating a meal directly before. And again, I don't think resistance training is going to directly like lead to this massive influx of endotoxin. Like if you're going to go run a 5k or something like that. Selective antimicrobials. I heard Jay say that once on a podcast and it's been uh, bouncing around in here for a while. It's uh, I think it's, I really like the evolutionary biology, like the aspect of thinking things. I know it's not the perfect view, but I just think it's so fascinating how like we evolved eating fruit and that shaped our microbiome. What about the post-workout? So you got, uh, you guys have talked about the insulin spike, which helps to lower the cortisol response and, and probably helps to shuttle nutrients into the muscle cells but it's also your most insulin sensitive time. So it's probably the time I, I say it's probably the time you can eat the most carbs without, you know, storing them as fat. I mean, to a degree. Um, what do you, do you think you should eat? Like, you know, 
finish your last set of biceps and then slam some chicken and then rice or, you know, like, like within a couple hours, you think there's a, another is like the decrease in insulin sensitivity over time. But, um, what do you guys think about that? Yeah. So for one, what I would, uh, clarify as far as the pre-workout meal or snack or eating, as long as it's not a heavy meal, it should be okay. I think having a, if you haven't eaten for a while and you might want to get a small snack and maybe that's mostly carb based before a workout, just so you have some fuel on board. But yeah, you just want to make sure nothing, mm-hmm. it's not anything that would require a lot of digestion. Uh, and I would still try to at least give yourself some space between that and a workout. And I think it's pretty intuitive too. I mean, nobody wants to go into like any sort of heavy resistance training workout with the like full stomach. A full belly. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, as far as the like post-workout window, obviously that's, I mean, not obviously, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people have talked about how that's overemphasized and it doesn't matter so much if you get that meal in within 30 minutes or two hours from a hypertrophy standpoint, because the signals for increased muscle protein synthesis are going to be there over many hours, over days. Mm -hmm. However, from a stress standpoint, it is rather important to try to get at least a form of carbohydrates in relatively quickly to keep those stress hormones elevated for as little a time as possible and to minimize the stress. So again, I don't think it's like you have to like sprint over to the store to grab like a banana or something, but I would try to have some carbs available pretty soon after the workout to get that insulin spike, which will, as you said, help drop those stress hormones. And so we'll just increase in blood sugar as well. And uh, yeah, I would say that's key. And of course you'll want to get enough protein in throughout the day. It doesn't matter so much if it's right after the workout, but I think it's mm-hmm. a, it's fine to get some protein in. It definitely won't hurt and might have a very incremental benefit in terms of, of building muscle. But yeah, I would say it's important to get a solid meal in after and, and, uh, yeah, you're definitely more insulin sensitive at that point. Uh, so getting a lot of carbs in is, is a good idea. I was thinking uh, adding in some, if you can, depending on how late you are uh, working out, adding in some coffee can help to increase the insulin sensitivity and glycogen resynthesis. All that is a, a big, I think it's a, if you can do it, if you can work out early enough in the day, I think it's a plus as well and probably lowers endotoxin as well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Coffee is pretty protective against endotoxin and a lot of its effects. Okay, so my friend Jaden, he's awfully quiet over here. Uh, he's looking to put on as much muscle as humanly possible. Can you guys design what your uh, perfect muscle building day for Jaden would look like in terms of like diet? And uh, we don't really need to talk about like the training itself, but. I, I think he should probably start out with fasted cardio. <laughs> but before or after the cold shower. Sandwiches. Yeah, fasted cardio, cold shower. Um yeah, the, those probably like the beginning. And then, um, no, I'm just joking. I would probably have him eat probably four to five meals a day, depending on probably more meals would be helpful. Um, I like to space my meals out for like a digestive standpoint, but in his case, he could, if his digestion is good, he could probably stay at the five meals. And then I would have him probably shoot for 0. 0.6, 0. 0.8 grams per pound of protein. Well, of course, over the course of the whole day, and if you want to be like really anal about it, you could do 0.4 grams per kilogram of protein per meal, which is the amount to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. I would make sure his protein sources, which I guess this is kind of antithetical to some of the bioenergetic perspectives, but I would make sure that he has like complete protein sources. So like collagen by itself wouldn't count as a protein source alone. I would combine collagen with either eggs or like a whey protein. So, and this is, I guess, tangential, but after his workout, if he needed to get his 
like he needs to get that meal in quick and to maybe like it was a lower fat meal after the workout so that he could get the five meals in with adequate meal spacing. So he wasn't like super uncomfortable and full. He could do like a whey and collagen shake, which will with use the base as like fruit and some carbohydrate. And that would allow him to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but also have the amino acids for collagen synthesis present from the collagen hydrolysate. Um, and then I would do two times at a minimum, two times as many carbs as protein as he's having there. And in fat content is kind of individual, but I'd probably start him off at a minimum of for him. He's a bigger guy. So maybe 80 grams and split that up over the course of the five meals and adjust the fat content based on how long he was going to have between the different meals. So like if he's going to eat breakfast and he has three hours between breakfast and his next meal, I'd probably increase the fat a bit. But if he's going to have a shake and then eat again in like an hour and a half, I'd probably make that like a very low fat meal. So it doesn't like slow the digestive process. Um, that's kind of what I would shoot for. I don't, uh, from like basic macros, mm-hmm. um, calories, I would get his gate calories. You'd have to tweak. It's kind of individual, but as a baseline, I use a calculator just because I don't know how much everyone's going to eat. So I'd look at what they're doing chronometer wise. I'd probably want to see what Jayden's doing for three days or so in chronometer. Then I would calculate like a baseline caloric intake and see where he's at. A lot of people I work with are actually lower than what the estimation is, which I don't think is surprising in today's current environment. And then I would probably, I would look at like what we would be shooting for. And I'd probably just slowly, if Jaden was super below that, slowly bring his caloric intake up. And then I would, if he's trying to gain weight, I would have him in a surplus. Um, and the surplus we would tweak based on, you know, what was going on with body, how much muscle he was building versus body composition, et cetera kind of keep an eye on that so that we, you know, we don't want to put them in a 2000 calorie surplus and then we just make it, we just put on a whole bunch of body fat. So that would be like calories and macros. Um, I don't know if you want to do any, any, add anything to that or add micros, Jay. Uh, yeah, there's just a, a couple of things I would, I would add in or emphasize, uh, from the optimizing testosterone standpoint, uh, as high of saturated fats to polyunsaturated fat ratio as possible would be ideal. So basically minimizing polyunsaturated fats, which directly uh, decrease testosterone production. They directly cause oxidative stress in the testes in the Leydig cells and prevent testosterone production and consuming more of them relative to saturated fats has been shown to be associated with lower testosterone. So increased saturated fats. And of course that might be obvious from somebody in the bioenergetic view, but at least worth mentioning uh, from the fat uh, intake standpoint, as much as 40% fat intake has been shown to be associated with highest levels of testosterone. Of course, fat is precursor to cholesterol, to the steroid hormones. So that uh, could can at least be part of that reason. I do think that's something we have to be careful with depending on the individual. Certain people do a lot better with higher fat, like in that 40% range. I think that tends to depend on how much muscle mass somebody has and how active they are. Uh, if somebody is leaner and has more muscle mass and is more active, I think they'll tend to do better around that 40%. If somebody is maybe has a lot of extra body fat, is not as active or doesn't have as much muscle, I might uh, reduce that fat intake maybe toward 20%. And even though in the research they show you know 40% fat intake increasing testosterone relative to lower amounts, we have to consider the individual. And if so, somebody is overweight, you know, helping them lose weight and also considering that they would already have higher levels of circulating fats would, you know, we'd have to take that into account when determining fat intake or anything like that. Um, but assuming 
well, those things are not the case. Those latter things, you know, pretty decent fat intake would be important. And um, one thing that I just wanted to emphasize as well that Mike mentioned is consistent eating. Not only does that help to lower the stress hormones, but also the studies looking at fasting not only are associated with things like low T3, but also low testosterone. And so, again, there's no surprise there considering that we want to be minimizing that stress and, and that whole stress side of the hormones and favoring the anabolic type hormones. So, yeah, there'd be a few things I'm emphasizing. And then, of course, yeah, micronutrients, we would just want to make sure really we're just kind of checking all those boxes, fat-soluble vitamins, minerals. I mean, pretty much everything is associated with like having enough of anything, whether it's zinc mm-hmm. or vitamin E or vitamin K. I mean, they're all going to be having an impact on, on being able to produce enough testosterone and, and other hormones involved with uh, building muscle. Menno Henselman, I like his work, has a great article on cholesterol, the forgotten anabolic. So I'd like to hear, hear your thoughts. And, and it's pretty interesting because it is the precursor to all the steroid hormones. And it, it does seem to be involved in a lot of the anabolic pathways. I'll be interested to hear like what you guys think in terms of a cholesterol intake for muscle growth. But also in terms of besides like hitting all your nutrient intake, like so you're not deficient in anything. You know, is there anything micronutrients you might want to get more of? I know retinol is pretty impo- seems to be pretty important in terms of energy in general, but also uh, testosterone synthesis. Uh, I think that the cholesterol is, <laughs> I think the cholesterol is, is quite important. I would, um, I, I was going to mention like before you asked the two questions, foods that I would prioritize for a muscle building process would be red meat, would be seafoods, uh, particularly some of the shellfish, uh, shrimp which is very high in cholesterol Mm. um oysters periodically mussels things like that uh eggs would be great with the red meat as well dairy if you tolerate it could be really great for muscle building i don't tolerate dairy but when i was pounding goat milk i was probably (laughs) one of the strongest that i've ever been personally um other things would be like different um saturated fat sources which they don't all necessarily have cholesterol in them but as jay mentioned having adequate saturated fat intake can increase uh, cholesterol production, which can be quite helpful um, for the downstream effect of steroid hormones. So say if you're, if you're taking exogenous thyroid hormone or your thyroid hormone is functioning well, having adequate cholesterol available is extremely helpful because the thyroid hormone pushes that cholesterol in the cell by increasing the LDL receptor. And then Jay kind of mentioned a little while back, but it also thyroid hormone also pushes cholesterol into the mitochondria be a protein called STAR, which is steroid acute regulatory protein. And then that's the first step where the cholesterol then moves to the different uh, P450 mm-hmm. enzymes and is converted into steroid hormones. So cholesterol is extremely important, extremely helpful. Um, some of the other fat saturated fat sources could be butter, could be coconut oil, could be beef fat or beef towel, could be chocolate. Some monos are also okay. So olive oil is okay. If you like avocados, those should be okay. Um, and then minimizing PUFA part would be quite helpful, especially like a uh, high fish oil intake, which can actually minimize cholesterol production by the liver by creating oxidative stress inside the cells. So, which is how it lowers triglycerides and cholesterols. So minimizing excessive intakes of things like that. Like if you're supplementing large amounts of fish oil, I'd probably minimize that um, and kind of optimize some of those foods. And then uh, all it you go for micros, J, uh, vitamin A, et cetera, unless and add whatever you want to the cholesterol. Oh, copper as well. Sorry. If you want to touch on that. Sure. Yeah. So I would agree, right? Cholesterol definitely being an important precursor. The amount that we consume isn't quite as important as long as we have enough of the precursors to produce it. But of course, consuming enough is a good way to make sure that you're getting enough. 
And I did just want to mention as a kind of sidebar, as far as mental handsomeness, is he does have a great article talking about protein intake. And I know we mentioned the 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound being adequate. I think most people trying to put on muscle emphasize protein way too much and try to get way larger amounts. When in reality, I think that's actually coming at the cost of potential muscle gain by reducing the amount of carbs or fats that uh, someone might be taking in, which is normally going to be more of a limiting factor than protein if they're getting that baseline amount. Uh, so I wanted to mention that, but yeah, I mean, micronutrients, again, virtually all are going to be involved at some level of production of whether it's thyroid hormone or uh, steroid hormones like pregnenolone, like testosterone, I mean, zinc, magnesium, fat soluble vitamins are all going to be really important. A lot of the foods that Mike mentioned are going to check off those boxes. You could throw liver in there as well as a really great source for vitamin A, for copper, uh, for iron too, which is important again, in adequate amounts, not excessive amounts. I don't know. I, I think that there is a, sometimes an overemphasis on micronutrients. You know, if you're trying to find an, like a simple article on ways to boost testosterone or increase muscle gain. And they'll mention like, take a zinc magnesium supplement. Mm -hmm. And I think for the vast majority of people, that's really not going to be the thing that makes the difference. We need to be getting enough of those nutrients without a doubt. But I think there's such an overemphasis on that typically and an underemphasis on getting enough food, uh, getting enough calories, getting enough carbohydrates, getting enough fat. And part of the reason for that too is because I think if the average person just tries to eat more, they will end up gaining some body fat. And that is because those there's so many issues going on in terms of being able to use that fuel properly to produce energy, whether it's due to the PUFA that's being taken up or other forms of stress or the endotoxin uh, that so many people are dealing with excessive amounts of. So yeah, the micros are important, but I think for most people, it's really a macronutrient issue, or I guess I would, I would want to like kind of ref reflexively add more emphasis to that since I think there's so much emphasis on the micros. What was it like for you guys to come across Ray together? Like, I think that's so cool that you, uh, cause like Jane and I have like been similar, but you know, got into different paths. So you guys kind of just both paleo, both keto, and then both it was exciting. throwing a football outside of an apartment complex in Miami with no shirt and no shoes and people walk looking at us like, what the fuck are these guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> Talking about fucking mitochondria respirations. Like, yeah, literally COQ 10 is a, you know, that's great. Yeah. 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 It was exciting. It was like a really, it was a really fun experience. I think to together to have that, you know, have each other to bounce things off of and, um, yeah, I mean, it enveloped our whole lives, which was a good time, too, for it to be in college. It definitely took priority over schoolwork after, <laughs> like, <laughs> schoolwork just became unimportant. unimportant. And so, um, yeah, yeah, that, uh, that happened to it. me a bit, too. <laughs> I went in pre-med, was, was not ending up pre-med. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a rough track. You were pre-med, too. I think we were all pre-med, no? You were pre-med, too, right, Jay? I was. Jaden, were you? Well, I was pre-med for naturopathic medicine whenever I was going to school, um, but didn't end up working out that way. <laughs> yeah, I started as well, and then I switched to nursing because I started as like, I'm not going to make it through another four years after this. It's impossible. There's no way it's happening. I need to be done. Yeah. I mean, you either, I mean, I, I had some really smart friends that were able to, you know, have fun in college and also be good at school. But I mean, you have to be, and I, th I didn't think I was going to have to do like, work in college. I was an idiot. But uh, coming in, but I mean, you have to be just like 
you know, Ray Pete kind of smart to just like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure Ray Pete wasn't getting hammered on the weekends, but to like really have a fun time <laughs> in college and also to just like be a, you know, yeah, yeah, what a three, five in like organic chemistry and all that stuff. It's a, it's a tough stuff. It wasn't for me. <laughs> it was really just like the nature of the classes were just like deadly, just like sitting there and listening to somebody just drone on about shit. Just like what I wound up doing is just give me the book. Yeah. And I'll just go tell me when the tests are and we'll be there. And then Jay and I would just do whatever we were going to do and then just cram the night before. Yeah. Uh, I, so yeah. That's, I just, I hated it. I hated that like entire environment. Uh, that's what was more killer for us than like necessarily the work. The work was just whatever it was the, the, the actual like process was like numbing it was like mm -hmm. mind numbing. I want to dive back into organic chemistry because I think it's so interesting, but it's just insane how they teach it where it's just like so theoretical. And I'm just like, now looking back, I'm like, this is so applicable. Like we could be talking about this in terms of, you know, metabolic health, things like that. And it makes it interesting. In my opinion, it makes it memorable First, you have these abstract things that are just like, it's like a math equation, but with chemistry. You have an actual context to learn something is way more important because they just present like, here's this shit, just know it. And the thing is, most people come out of school and they don't know anything. They don't know anything that they learn. Like I literally, I work with doctors in the hospital. Like I work with ICU doctors and I'm just like talking to them about, um, so as an example, we have patients coming with sepsis and like asking them questions. Why are we looking at lactate or, or lactate dehydrogenase or this and that? And like, like, you know, like trying to lead into the conversation and the response, like, I don't know. I don't remember that shit. I just know that I have to know this for X, Y, and Z. So it's like nobody actually knows in depth why X, Y, and Z is happening or what specifically is going on in like super depth is kind of like, you know, it in this narrow context. Mm. And that's what's, that's the problem with school. The other thing is they, they go through things too fast. It's like, I was, I work with a, I was working at one point with a doctor of physical therapy and she was a professor at the school and I was talking to her about like the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain and how important it is to understand that with like the disease processes that you're looking at with patients. And she's just like, well, my, my students know all of this stuff. And I was like, they don't, I guarantee you, they don't know it. They just memorize the shit for the test and they know how to answer the questions, but they don't actually understand it. Cause I remember when I learned it in school too, like I memorized all the steps and I knew all the enzyme bullshit for my biology classes but I didn't really understand it until like when Jay and I started reading Ray's work and talking about it, it was like, Oh, that's why this is important. That's why the Randall mm -hmm. cycle is important to know about. Like, this is the context that it plays in. Oh, this is how it factors into cancer and energy metabolism and production of hormones and things like that. And so like when you start putting it into like a framework and a context and actually understanding why, instead of just like, this is what this shit is, it, it's like, a, it's an entirely different story. And most studies are written as, this is what it is. Like these are, this is the thyroid hormone and it, this is how it's created. And these are the transporters, but like, there's no context for why it's important or like what's affecting the transporters or why you even need to know this stuff. It's just like, this is all this stuff. And then you kind of have to read between the lines or like put it into your own context, which is, I think why Ray's work was so, it's so valuable because he like provided this massive context for the rest of us to be like, Oh, this is why we need mm -hmm. to understand this shit. Instead of just like, well, what did, what did the Tokaluan people eat? Well, I'm going to eat like them because they don't have heart disease. <laughs> it's like entirely different perspective. And it's not that those things aren't important, those other things, but it's that 
um, like the perspective that Ray gave just, there's so, there's so much there to work from. It's, yeah. it's amazing. He just gave you like, con- I like he said, he didn't give you answers. He gave you context, which is, uh, it was just so important because it doesn't give you the, it doesn't give you the answers, but it gives you things to think about and not like you can draw solutions from what he said. Yeah. I remember the first time reading him was just, yeah. <laughs> I had a question for you guys. So we work for Umzu, which are formulate supplements and, I've been thinking about uh, like a muscle building supplement for for protein. And I think milk has a pretty, you know, very decent amino acid profile. And I like the combination of, you know, the 80% whey, the 20% casein for both the insulin uh, stimulating effects and then the longer digestive proteins that helps to, you know, keep the amino acid concentration, the blood high. But I was thinking we can make like a milk plus. So it's like you have the 80-20, but you also maybe throw in like 10% collagen and maybe a little bit extra leucine or BCAAs in general. So maybe like 5% BCAAs, 10% collagen and the rest, you know, 80 to 20 ratio of, uh, casein away. What do you guys think about that? Or how would you change it to make it more optimal? I don't think you need to add BCAAs with the other things that you have there after a certain point with the BCAAs, you're not going to like maximally stimulate mTOR anymore, which Mm -hmm. is the main signaling thing that you're looking for with leucine. Um, and some, and like valine and isoleucine. So is it like three grams? Do you know, do you know if there's an actual, I think it's two or 2.5 grams in one sitting maximally stimulates mTOR from, from leucine. So like if you're already hitting that with the milk, then, then you should be pretty solid. The other, you should be pretty solid overall from that perspective. Also BCAs taste pretty bad. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever BCAs, but they're pretty gross. <laughs> I, remember, like, I was trying to do, so like I was reading about Georgie's BCAs plus phenylalanine tyrosine stack for mm-hmm. dopamine. And I bought raw BCAs cause I didn't want to eat sucralose and things like that. Oh, I mixed it all in water. It was a probably the worst thing I've ever, one of the worst things I've ever, one of them that I've ever tasted was the raw. It was just like burnt, just like it tastes like burnt. <laughs> I, I, I just bought some straight BCAs. So now I got something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> need a, some type of flavoring for them. Um, yeah. I mean, as far as protein, I think collagen, like for me, collagen and whey would probably be the way to go. If you want like a, like a collagen peptides and whey, if you want like a very fast acting protein, um, if you wanted a slower acting protein for night, maybe you could divide it. So you have whey and col- collagen for one and then casein and collagen for another. So like the nighttime protein would be casein plus collagen and you'd have like the relaxing effect of the glycine plus the slow digesting effect of the casein. And then I would probably add some carbohydrate and maybe some fat in there as well. And that would carry you throughout the night. And then like a whey collagen would be like a quick digesting. Mm-hmm. And I would do, you know, some quick digesting carbohydrate and um, the whey plus the collagen. And then you have like the beneficial effect of the the, the muscle protein stimulating amino acids plus the, the like collagenous tissue stimulating amino acids in the collagen. Um, those, those would probably be the way that I, I would go. So you don't think the combination of the whey plus the casein, like having the fast digesting protein that has a spike and then maybe for sleep, but, uh, just in general, just to keep the muscle protein synthesis higher for a little bit longer, keep your amino acid concentration higher. Uh, you don't think that's kind of, I thought that's kind of one of the reasons why milk is such a great source of protein besides like, you know, the fat and everything else in it. But you don't think it's that important having the casein with the way? I guess it depends on what your ultimate outcome is. When I think about the way in collagen, I think of like a post-workout, like a really mm-hmm. good post-workout or like a really good quick 
like meal to get in there. So like, as an example for myself, I do call, I'll do, I don't do collagen cause I don't digest it well. Uh, or it causes digestive problems for me because like other things related to my own context. But for like a lot of clients, I'll do like a collagen in a way plus a juice and then like some whole fruit and then supplements to add would be like B vitamins and calcium and magnesium. Um, and then like, I like as vitamin C source, things like camu, camu and acerola. So you have like all the benefits of the plant compounds and then the fibers, and then you have the rapidly digesting carbohydrate plus the, these proteins that have the differential effect like for muscle from the way, and then mm. collagenous or joint connective tissue from the collagen plus the amino acids in the collagen, the way balance out really well together. Um, in terms of they, you have a, like a balance between glycine and methionine. And then you also have the, um, the main amino acids for glutathione, glutathione synthesis. So which would be, I think it's glutamate, glutamate, cysteine and glycine. So all the limiting amino acids are there from the combination of those two proteins. So that's a shake that I actually use personally or with my clients. Minus, I just don't do the collagen and other amino acids you could use to bump up to like bump up some of the value would be like glycine and adding extra glycine and taurine. Mm. Their glycine intake, there's a Spanish study looking at glycine intake and shooting for around 0.2 grams per kilogram per day. And then from some of the other research, basically you want to have at least one gram of glycine um, and added to that for every gram of methionine that you have. So for a lot of people, you could be looking at like, a daily or glycine requirement for balancing amino acids, like between 10 and 20 grams per day. So adding some extra glycine could be in there. And then taurine goes well with that as well. You just have to be careful about your digestion with those because they can increase bile acid output. Mm. So that would be like a recipe. That's a recipe that I currently use. Um, those are things that I would, would possibly add. Um, the casein for me, I don't digest well. I have problems with it. It causes like constipation and issues for me. So I don't really do much casein. But if somebody tolerated it, then it I think it would be beneficial. Um, I think it'd be beneficial overall. Yeah. So you could depends on what you're using them for. You could have like multiple different options there. Yeah. Jay, you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I like the combination. Uh one thing I wanted to mention as far as like a confounding variable when it comes to how much of the BCAAs can have, like where the maximal effect is on protein synthesis and also just on total protein within in a meal is digestion is a huge confounding variable. So when it comes to a BCAA supplement or a protein powder that's digested very quickly, you'll reach that maximum uh, at a lower level. Whereas if you're having a full meal or if you had the protein with the full meal or the BCAAs with the full meal, because it's digested slower, you can have a higher maximum with a higher dose. So I think assuming that you're having the, like you're encouraging someone to consume it with a meal, I think you could have higher amounts than uh, are supposed to be maximally inducing as far as protein synthesis goes when it comes to BCAAs or protein overall. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't be as concerned about that, but I like the, I like the sound of it, the combination of casein, whey and, and collagen. In terms of raw milk, do you guys think the benefits from, and maybe you guys don't think there's a lot of benefits comes from the, the probiotics, like the live bacteria in it, or I heard Paul Saladino mention this and I haven't seen anything on it, but I thought it was interesting that the pasteurization process could denature some of the proteins, which could actually decrease its digestibility. I think it's less likely denaturing because I think most people do well with warmed milk or heated milk. I think normally that improves digestion, if anything. And uh, 
the, the pasteurization is normally like flash pasteurized, mm-hmm. you know, it's not held at the temperature for long and it's not a very high temperature either. So I would assume that the denaturing of the protein isn't that likely, but I do think there's some other factors with the raw milk. So part of it could be the bacteria, part of it could be the presence of the enzymes. Also, it's not homogenized, which can make the fat side much easier to digest. I think you also have a huge quality component too. Normally, if you're getting raw milk, it's from you know much better source, much higher quality, which is going to affect maybe if it's A2 versus A1 casein uh, and might affect some other aspects of the milk quality. So yeah, that'd be my main thoughts. I think it just depends on the person. I think some people like there's a spectrum of tolerance with it. With the one thing I've seen with raw milk and why I think people tolerate it better is kind of what Jay mentioned is like, if you have some of the enzymatic components still intact, I don't think that the lactic acid bacteria is that high in the raw milk in and of itself, especially if it's not spoiled or like, uh, what's it, buttermilk or soured milk, whatever, I forget what it's called. Um, And so what gets denatured is the enzymes. So I don't know if Paul was referring to like the enzymes, but as far as like actually denaturing like the whey or the casein, I don't think that makes, you know, that big of a deal there, Um, especially because most of the proteins that people eat are denatured. You're cooking a steak, you're cooking cooking your fish, you cook your chicken, like it's denatured. And for like, if you're using a whey protein, um, there's a good, especially a an isolate. It's a good chance it's also denatured as well as cooked. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that the denaturing of that is less of a problem, but maybe the denaturing of some of the enzymes. So I have, as an example, I have had clients who don't do well with regular milk, but from like a lactose perspective, but they do vine with raw milk, and I think that that's a function of perhaps some of the enzymes being intact and uh, helping them deal with some of the lactose content, which I think could be quite helpful mm-hmm. as far as like the protein. I've seen people, if they don't do well with casein, you don't do well with like the beta casein peptide that gets generated. I've seen people have like issues, whether it's raw, whether it's pasteurized, whether it's ultra high temperature treated and homogenized, like it just really depends on your tolerance from that perspective. Yeah. And generally the denaturing and cooking it makes it more digestible in terms of other proteins typically, I believe. Yeah, to an extent. Like if you burn your steak and it like you, it's less digestible because the protein structure is so altered. But mm. if it's like cooked to like a decent temperature and it's not super well done, um, then there's some studies actually on this. It's it's actually more digestible than raw. All right. So I don't know if you'll have an answer to this. I'm curious to see what you guys uh think. Um, so Gilbert Ling describes ATP as a cardinal absorbent and just basically like the way I think it basically just glues everything together in the cell and it's kind of in a very, very oversimplified way of putting it. But do you guys have in terms of like the muscle contraction process, do you guys have any like kind of maybe metaphors or way to describe how you view ATP in that role? Cause it's, to, it seems like more like an ATP pump when how they describe it today. But I was just curious if you guys have any views of how like Ling might describe that. Well, so he has described it in papers for one, you know, I think this is this goes for both Mike and I, where Ling's views and information that he puts forth is really complicated, relies a lot on physics, and we don't have enough of background there to, to have a, a real good comprehensive understanding of it. But I can at least repeat the kinds of things that, that uh, Ling has talked about. And so he has talked about it in terms of muscle contraction. So with the, AD, the ATP's adsorbing effect... 
when it interacts with a protein, essentially it, it causes the protein to elongate, to straighten out. And it does that through its electron withdrawing effect. That's what the adsorbing is. And so he's talked about in muscle contraction, what's happening is the ATP is, is separating from the protein, whether it's being used or something. I'm not sure exactly what he's suggesting is driving that. Uh, but that basically uh, prevents that electron withdrawing effect and causes the protein to fold. And he has described that as what allows for the contraction. And as an example of this, and this is something that I've heard outside of just uh, Ling, I think Ray's talked about this as well, where if you think of a situation when there's no energy at all, as when somebody dies and they're in rigor mortis, all of the muscles are fully contracted. Mm -hmm. And so what we basically have is using that as evidence for this idea that the lack of ATP or the reduction in ATP uh, leads to the contraction of the muscle. And yeah, from, from Ling's view, it's happening due to this physical effect causing the proteins to fold without the electron withdrawing effect of the ATP. Interesting. I think in the study that you were referencing, Jay, too, there was an Albert St. Georgie study. He yep. did add ATP back to the dish and it, that had this muscle and it actually relaxed the muscle. So it, it appears that in the, I guess the contrasting point here is in the current understanding of um, like muscular physiology, ATP binds onto, is it, what's it, troponin or unblocks troponin yeah. so that actin and my, myosin can, like they can, the actin can cross bridge on the myosin and kind of walk and create a contraction. Whereas, so it's like this very mechanical process. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the, with Ling's view, what you're seeing is that the ATP has a direct effect on like the entire protein structure. So when the ATP is bound to that, to the protein, it allows the proteins to interact with other components in the cell by adjusting the electrons that are present, the charges essentially, and allows the actual tissue to relax the, the proteins to unwind altogether. And then when it's removed, they're able to kind of like coil back up together. So it's like, those are the ones like this very mechanic mechanistic point of view. And then this other one is kind of like this more broad approach. Um, I don't think I could comment over which one is the per like the correct approach mm -hmm. <laughs> i don't, i haven't done the research but I, I think both hypotheses are interesting and and like possible although i probably personally favor like ling's understanding because it seems more complete to me overall instead of like these like individual mechanistic things happening on these like really microscopic levels and mike and jay where can we find you guys you can find me on the podcast that Jay and I do together, the Energy Balance Podcast. And then I have my own YouTube channel. It's just Mike Fave. And then my website is MikeFaveNP.com. Yeah, Mike and I do a podcast called the Energy Balance Podcast. My website is jfeldmanwellness.com. And for any listeners today who are looking for some practical takeaways, things to try as far as food, stress, exercise, in order to maximize their cellular energy and improve body composition, I would recommend heading over to uh, uh, my website. I have a page with a free mini course and that can be found at jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy. So yeah, free seven day mini course going over all those things, practical takeaways. Uh, again, jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy. Awesome. All right. Well, th thanks for tuning in guys. Jay and Mike, it was a pleasure talking to you guys and have you guys on. This was awesome. And thanks for tuning in and have a good one.